First Peter chapter one, verses 17 through 21. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant and infallible word. <clears throat> if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or uh, gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word to our souls and for the glory of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The church has a problem. And the church's problem is simply, it's multifold. It's oftentimes ineffective to, in confronting the world's uh, growing influence on itself and often is ignorant of the incipient encroaching of the world into its very fabric and culture. The church has oftentimes embraced, uh, and in these later years especially, worldly concepts and phrases and words and definitions and practices and attitudes. And there's their denial, there are multiple denials of key points of theology. There is a lackluster love amongst Christianity for the church itself. Many people identify as spiritual, many identify as Christians, and have no use whatsoever for the church. We marvel at that because Jesus Christ gave his life for the church, and he refers to the church as his bride. At every point in the revelation of God and his word, who does he speak to? He speaks to the church. He will speak oftentimes to a prophet with a message for the church. On a personal scale, we have lazy attitudes about sin and repentance. And I'd ask this, what portion of our prayers are, 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 are filled with praise of the person and character of God uh, in juxtaposition to the portion of, of the requests that we have and make known to him. What portion of the confession of sin? I'll put to you that, that the problem is that we as a church, that, that God's people, that this generation of Christianity lightly considers the subject of sin, thinks less of sin oftentimes. Not, it's not pervasive amongst every single one of us, but it's a problem within the church. Very little do we hear of sin and repentance. Look recently at this at the revival at Asbury that we hear so much of in secular news and in our news feeds. I've watched. I've watched many clips. I've watched a great deal of of stuff, uh, and and of uh, I've viewed a lot of what is contemporary going on contemporaneously in live feeds. And I'll tell you one thing: I haven't really heard anything about is repentance, and about sin, and about judgment, and the fear of God, and the judgment of God. I've heard personal confessions. I've heard personal. Uh, personal testimonies of God's grace, but I, but I haven't heard a thing about the fear of the Lord. And I think that is fundamentally a problem in the church today, is a lack of the fear of God. Do we remember our past sins? Do we calculate the cost of our redemption day by day? Do we call to mind daily that God, being omniscient and omnipresent, sees every thought is aware of every single word that courses through our, our our minds. He knows every deed, and and that though man looks at the outer person, God is the one who continually and ever continually examines what is inside of us. The church, the church has lost a sense of the fear of God. 
I, I, I think that the Apostle Peter understands that the church is always in such danger and that always Christian people who have experienced the grace of God in Christ Jesus are, are prone to lose a sense of the fear of God. And maybe the, we fall into this, this idea of that, that we are saved by God's grace and, and that initially we are to fear the Lord and His judgment. And so in light of that, we come in faith to Christ. And then we need fear no longer. And yet, the Scriptures have a great deal to say about the fear of God. Certainly, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is much, much more, though. I want to ask as we examine that very subject of the fear of God and then uh, see why we ought to fear God. And there are five points within the passage here, but but we'll get to those points and I'll call attention to them when I get them so that you can follow me. But we need to clarify to whom Peter is writing. Who is Peter writing to? He is writing to people identified within the text. Uh, They are those who address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. They, they rightly impart uh, Father uh, when they pray. They are those who look to God and see and hear reflected back to them, Father, I am your Father. He is our Father. In other words, there's an established relationship, a familial, covenantal relationship between us. He says much, much more about the identity of these persons. Uh, verses 18 and following. They are ransomed people. They are covered with the precious blood of Christ. They believe in God. They have hope in God. And they are, according to verse 1 in our same chapter, they are elect exiles, people sprinkled, people sanctified. And verse 3, they have been caused to be born again to a living hope. They are kept by the power of God. These are Christian people. These are believers. These are believers who have left behind that initial servile fear that sees God in the the terribleness of his judgment and has now come to acknowledge God as their father with whom they have a relationship. And the apostle Peter is writing to them and saying this very thing. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Why would such people be in need of the fear of God? Why do you and I need to recognize and be renewed in the fear of God? Isn't, isn't as I said earlier, isn't the fear of God something for the initial stage of conversion? And then, as 1 John 4 says, perfect love casts out all fear. God is love. He's identified as love. He is love. He's much, much more, but he is love. And so is it incumbent upon the believer to no longer fear in any way or any sense uh, the Lord God? Perfect love casts out fear. That's the argument often used. John has in view a fear that results as a matter of punishment that looks to God's punishment against sin. In fact, he states it clearly that God will punish sin, that that the fear with which we would fear God who would punish sin is a fear that we are no longer in possession of as believers because the punishment for our sin has fallen upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It has been placed upon him upon whose sins uh, our sins were laid. John has in view a matter of punishment. He states it very clearly. Uh, Fear of future condemnation and punishment. And the believer who is loved by God has cast out that fear, that love experienced, that love of God that casts itself, casts itself, casts out fear. And yet we are told in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, they enjoyed peace, they were being built up, and they were going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Two things together, the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What is that fear that Peter speaks of? According to Mr. Webster, fear is a, a, feeling, a feeling of anxiety and agitation uh, caused by the presence or nearness of danger, uh, evil or pain, timidity, dread, fear, terror, fright, apprehension. 
Uh, those are things which I think First John is referencing in chapter 4. But there's a second definition, and this is the one that I think that we have in view this morning, as Peter commands, conduct yourselves with fear. This second definition is simply this, respectful dread, awe, and reverence. Respectful dread, awe, and reverence. Of course, Hebrews refers to this, let us, let us draw near, let us, let us hold God in such a way that we draw near with awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us draw near with reverence and awe, we are told. A respectful dread, a reverence and awe. Martin Lloyd-Jones was often uh, condemned or uh, complained about about, uh, because his preaching was strong and he provoked fear within his listeners and uh, that he might have the opportunity to save their souls. And that's exactly what he was doing. And that's what Peter is saying. Fear is not only of God as God, but the fear of God and of his power is appropriate for God's people. Jesus himself impressed upon his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 the necessity of fearing God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Hebrews 10.31 tells us it is a fearful thing, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Paul also says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Remember, respectful dread, an awe, and a reverence for God and his power. And so Peter's argument is bolstered by, by Paul's, where, where we learn that, uh, that, that, that those who are redeemed of God and born again unto everlasting salvation, when we encounter God with fear, we, 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 it results in fear and reverence. And, and Christ also provides the motivation of Christian conduct to conduct ourselves with fear because God is a consuming fire. He is worthy of respectful dread and awe, and he is to be revered. So his very first words are, conduct yourselves with fear. Well, isn't isn't that the reality? Robert Lighton, who's an Episcopal bishop in, in Glasgow, Scotland in the 17th century, he said it like this. He says, this verse is teaching us to say, I will not sin because my father is, well, is my judge, but for my frailties. So when I stumble and fall, when I do sin, I will hope for mercy because my judge is also my father. What he has in view is these, these two realities, and that's what Peter's doing. If you address God as father, and he is the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. It's true in, in, in both those senses. Whatever blessed truths may be contained in our ability to call him father, and indeed we are commanded and, and invited to call him father, as we are drawn in devout love to him as, as a child for our father, yet there, let there also be included in this, in these minds of each of us as our child, as children of God, that in fact God sees all. That he is to be reverenced. That he is to be feared. Because he sees all. Father does not exclude judge. And in the last great day, we will be judged according to our works. God will examine our works. We will not be judged with regard to our sin, but we will be judged with regard to our works. If you're a believer this morning. Well, this is Peter's point. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He's not talking about that abject, servile fear. He's not talking about a terror of God as someone who is awful and horrible in all of his judgments, because although that is true, we will not experience that judgment because of what comes in the later portion of those verses. And we'll talk about in a few moments. If you're a Christian today, what he's talking about is a reverent fear a reverent dread and awe of God who is just and who is holy and before whom one day we will stand, but also 
before whom daily we stand as we come to him in constant prayer, in in full display of the everyday details of our lives and the fullness of all that goes through our minds. Yes, God is aware of it all. God sees it all. There's a sense in which we hear or bear this sense of fearful conduct in this life. This reverent awe of God is coupled with a fear that as to knowing our own weaknesses and the strong temptations that are around us of of falling into sin. It's not a dread of the possibilities of sin, but the well-grounded, rational response of individuals who know ourselves to be uh, overconfident at times and altogether pulled in too easily by the world. And sometimes even presumptuous. And so we fear. We do what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We, we, we conduct ourselves with fear. And as Peter says, but also uh, we, 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 we discipline our bodies so that we would not be overtaken by sin nor fail to achieve what God has called us uh, to achieve and to do. Peter knew what it was to presume upon the grace of God and to presume upon uh, his own abilities. Do you remember that Peter uh, promised the Lord in the upper room, Lord, if all of them abandon you, I will not. Lord, how dare you say that we will all abandon you and forsake you in the last day uh, and, and in the day of your of, of, of your suffering? I will not, even if all of them do. Well, of course, he denied the Lord, and he didn't just do it once. He did it three times. And then in the garden, he struck off the ear of the servant, and the Lord Jesus rebuked him, healed the air, and told him, put the sword back in your sheath. This is not the day for it. And so Peter is the one who has learned, I think, a lesson, who has come to a mature understanding of himself, and who says, look, even if you call him father, the one who impartially judges all the works and the hearts of mankind. Nevertheless, despite that reality, hold fast to that reality, but also recognize that you are to conduct yourselves with fear before God. Well, Peter begins to give us a number of reasons for why for why we are to fear the Lord. And I think a number, there are at least five within the passage here this morning. Why should we as Christians, why should we who love the Lord, who have experienced God as Father, fear God? Why must we conduct, conduct ourselves with a reverent awe, with, with a, 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 a dreadful sense of the immensity and the fullness of the power of God? Why should we walk and conduct ourselves in the fear of the Lord? Well, the first reason is because of the impartial judgment of God. The impartial judgment of God. The very thing he says in verse 17, if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves with fear. The Apostle Peter is pointing this one reality out as as he provides these five grounds for why we ought to conduct ourselves with fear and why God's people, redeemed and saved, born again, trusting and hoping in him, adopted into the family of God, certain and assured of the love of God in Christ, why we should conduct ourselves in fear, because God judges impartially. There's an immense amount of truth contained in in, in those verses. God is not a respecter of persons. That is the conclusion that the Apostle Peter comes to in Acts and, and when he's there in, 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 on a roof uh, of uh, living in his home and, and an angel appears to him and, and a sheet is dropped down and there are unclean animals and he is told three times to take and eat. He refuses three times. Peter is, it's always about threes, Peter, isn't it? Uh, and downstairs there's a knock at the door and there's a man that says, come, uh, Cornelius is calling for you. Uh, come and, and go. And, and of course he goes, he preaches kind of reluctantly, he shares the gospel with them. And then afterwards, as they are, as they are clearly believing and converted, he says, I understand now that God is not a respecter of persons. 
There he was in Joppa, and God had a lesson for Peter on that housetop. God is not a respecter of persons. Great men, little men, rich men, thin men, fat men. I'm not going to do the same with women. Women and all the many varied and glorious variations between uh, women amongst themselves and their own fair sex. Poor women, small children, large children, rich women, educated persons, illiterate, people who think themselves higher than anyone else, those who consider themselves the worst persons in the world, the chiefs of sinners, saying to, to the Apostle Paul, you didn't know me, that's how you could claim that title, but I am the chief of sinners. We are all on one dead level in the eye of the great judge who is God. All of us. Don't fall into the trap that Peter is pointing to the eventual end of all things. Uh, that, that somehow he has in view the great white throne judgment where every individual who has walked on the face of the earth will stand before God and before the searching judgment of God where he will judge on the basis of sin. On the basis of the covenant of works. And every person who is without a Redeemer, who does not have a surety, who has not been saved by the blood of Christ, who has not been pardoned for their sins, will stand before God and face His wrath and judgment and naked and, and without any recourse, without any, any, any shield, uh, there before the, the bald face of God's judgment. And you'll face that judgment as a sinner having to, get, to, to, to provide atonement for those sins. That will be the eternal judgment before God. You have sinned against the holiness and the, the law of God. And in sinning against God, you have transgressed His commandments. And more than that, you were born in sin. You're guilty of the original transaction and sin of Adam. And his corruption has fallen upon you. How will you answer and what will you give when you stand before God in the great white throne judgment? You and every other person in humanity who has not been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You'll stand before him and you will have to provide an immediate atonement for your sins. And how can you do it? Unless you are in Christ, unless Christ has provided and has washed away the stain of your sin by the virtue of his blood, You'll stand before God and you must give an answer. And what will you do? Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day when you must turn your faith and your heart and your mind, your affections and the whole of your entire being. And you must turn to God and repent of your sins and acknowledge before him the fullness of all that you have committed in transgressions against his law. And you must own the reality of original sin that you were conceived in sin, not that your mother committed any sin relating to your conception, but rather that you were a sinner from the day that you were conceived in your mother's womb. By virtue of your identity with the first Adam, who is Adam who has transgressed in the garden and through normal posterity has passed down to you his original corruption and judgment for sin. But you, if you're a believer, you will not face that divine judgment because you have been redeemed and saved from that searching judgment by the virtue of the work of Jesus Christ Peter is referring to the idea that drawn out in the original Hebrew, that there is a continuous divine judgment running along all throughout the entirety of an individual's life, side by side. Each of us, all of us together. And all of us need to consider this for a moment, that at each moment of every day of our lives, there is an ongoing estimate of our moral character. God is intending according to his will, to refine us, to make us holy, to sanctify us. And he is always looking for ways in which to do that. That is a never-ceasing work of the Holy Spirit of God. He is continually applying to us the blood of Christ, working in us that which is pleasing in the sight of our God and Father. 
is examining our thoughts and our motives. Everything that we are and everything that we think and every attitude and sinful attitude that we have is there present, opened and laid bare to the divine mind. It's kind of like when we're driving on the highway to acknowledge this reality. It's kind of like driving on the highway and we're driving at a, at a good steady clip, perhaps 10, 15, 20 miles over the speed limit. And we come up over a rise of the highway, and there on the left-hand side is a car parked in the middle in the unauthorized emergency-only vehicles lane or, 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 or little, little parking area, and they have something pointed at you. In that moment, you're immediately awakened to the fact, I am seen, I am exposed, I am dead to rights. Everything about me, everything that I'm doing right now is seen, observed, and has now been checked and registered. I'm dead to rights. Not that that's ever happened to anyone in this church, but perhaps it has. We need that kind of a recognition that our God does not have a gun always displayed towards us, but but he is always examining and he is always seeing. He sees every thought. He sees every motive. And should we not, as we interact with that idea, come to recognize that God sees it all? And if he sees it all, should I not watch carefully over my own internal mechanisms and my thought life and examine carefully my way of life so that I might Conduct myself in fear before my God who sees all and judges all things impartially. New Testament scholar Simon Kistemaker has said, what's the purpose of knowing that God is our Father and Judge? The Christian should consciously live in the presence of God. He knows that God's eye is constantly upon him, which is a delight to our soul. He knows that God's eye is constantly upon him. Moreover, he also realizes that the non-Christian is carefully observing him in regard to the words that he or she speaks. In all the deeds that we perform, the world is watching. And if we are a true child of God, then the virtues of the Father should be reflected in us, and the world should see that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what they should see in us is Christ. Should we not be examining ourselves, conducting ourselves with godly fear, a reverence of Him, and a careful examination of ourselves? That's what it means to conduct ourselves in fear. To understand who God is, and to constantly be examining and understanding who ourselves, who we ourselves are. Well, God is God has provided that reason to us in His very character and His very essence, who impartially judges according to each one's work. He has given us a motive to conduct ourselves in godly fear. But there's a second one, too, and this is in the negative sense found in verse 18. You are not redeemed with perishable things. You are not redeemed with perishable things. Think about it, silver, gold. We live here in Massachusetts. We have a bottle bill. If you take your, your soda cans and bottles and you bring them down now, plastic containers of any kind, you bring them back to the grocery store, you pop them into the machine, it shreds them and gives you a receipt for a nickel or 10 cents or 15 cents. That's redemption. We buy back something. We, we, we buy back what we... Uh, or redeem what we have by way of obligation or debt. Silver and gold, as wonderful as they are, we value them in this world. They are our cur- they are our our money. They are valuable pos- uh, possessed resource. And yet we are commanded in verse eighteen: "You are not redeemed." We are told: "You are not redeemed with perishable things." like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Here's the reality. Each of us 
Each of us is born with a sense of the culture and, and yes, the, the heritage that comes to us from our forefathers. And for some of us, if we were not born into a Christian home, even there we find that our parents were sinners. They have offended the living God. We're in need of redemption, of conversion. They were saved by grace through faith in Christ. But even then we experience their inconsistencies, their sins, their neglect, perhaps, maybe harshness and anger. We saw their pride. We experienced their abuse. And yet on the other hand, we know that those who are not believers, we can look, we can see, we, we fully understand what kind of persons they were. Well, we are not redeemed from that way of life by virtue of perishable things. We've not been redeemed in some, some way that God provided an individual to bring to him enough silver and gold to in, in some way redeem enough people that God would be satisfied. So God is not sitting on heaven's Fort Knox. He's not, he's not hoarding resources. He doesn't need them. He made them all. They all belong to him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Why would he ask of us to give him perishable things? He's not looking for us to put an altar out there and bring him blood and, and the flesh of bulls and goats. He doesn't eat. He doesn't consume blood. He won't eat vegetables. He's not in need of bread. He doesn't need water. He is a spiritual being. There's nothing you or I can give to him that will in any way assuage or cause or bring about or bring to effect our redemption. We cannot redeem ourselves from our sins. The price is too high. It's too immense. If all the world were given back to God, and of course, He owns them. How can what you have be given back to you? We can't buy God. We can't buy his affections. Lots of people are trying to do so. Give away a legacy gift to a particular organization. Even if it's a Christian organization, that will not in any way reconcile you to God. Give all you want to the Roman Catholic Church. Give all you want to Joel Osteen or to some other TV preacher. Give all you want to the local church. It will not change in any way whatsoever you're standing before yourself and God. However, if you do forsake your riches and you, and, and you cling to God in Jesus Christ and you repent of your sins and you believe in Jesus Christ into everlasting salvation, yes. Yes, indeed. Because you've experienced new life. You're redeemed not because of the things that you give, but rather because of the precious blood of the Lamb. Which brings us to our third reason why we should conduct ourselves before God with fear in this world. In a positive sense, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. It's essential to buy back something from its obligations and debts. And we have an obligation before God. We are indebted to God because of our sin nature and the continuing flowing out of sin from ourselves. Paul could write, Christ redeemed us. It's a good word, redeemed. It's a word that should come readily to our lips, but it's not one we often use. And it's not one that I've heard much from the Asbury Revival. Because it acknowledges debt. It acknowledges obligation to God. It acknowledges fundamentally sin. It acknowledges that God is holy. It acknowledges that I am not holy. And that I have an obligation to a holy God to live for Him. And I have not done so. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. If I'm going to own God as my, Christ as my Redeemer, and God as my Savior, then I must first acknowledge that I am wicked. And indeed, in Adam I am. By virtue of my sin nature, I am. By virtue of the sins which I have committed, I am. And yet, if Christ has given himself for me to redeem me, I am not wicked. And I am not still in my sins. Even though I am still a sinner. And even though I still sin, I am, still, I am not counted by God as a sinner, 
but rather I am counted righteous in his son, Jesus Christ. So sin is no longer no longer has dominion over me. Sin no longer rules over me. In the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, sin is now just a nuisance to me. It's something I must confess to my God and continually repent of. But, but with regard to my eternal salvation and my life of conducting myself in fear before him and walking in holiness, sin is a nuisance. Sin is not a statement of condemnation. Sin for me, for you, who are redeemed of God, is a nuisance. We have been redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb of God. Here is a positive aspect. Here is a positive aspect of our redemption. Look, John the Baptist once said when Jesus walked out, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul comments that our redemption has been accomplished through Jesus Christ because God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. The writer of Hebrews declares that Christ didn't enter the most holy place by means of the blood of bulls and goats, but once for all, by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. And John, John in Revelation records the song of the saints in heaven standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is their song. You are worthy. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men and women and boys and girls for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. My question to you this morning is, have you been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ from God in His judgment and wrath you will know whether or not you have been by virtue of whether or not you have have believed. Have you believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you have, you are saved. If you repented of your sin and you have acknowledged before God, I am wicked, I am evil, and I, I have done what is wicked and evil in your sight. And yet your son Christ is righteous. It is in he that I trust. Surely you are saved. Surely Christ died for you. Surely the blood of Christ has effectually atoned for your sin. People love to say, you know, I've been saved. I'm saved. It's a wonderful statement. But isn't it more accurate to say, I'm redeemed. I've been redeemed. Yes, I'm saved. I'm saved from the wrath of God. I've been redeemed from the wrath of God. I owed a debt to God. I have an obligation to God, but Christ has wiped it clean. Christ has fulfilled what was my obligation, and now it has been wiped away. I'm pardoned and I'm freed. Redemption says both and. It says I'm saved, but it says so much more too. That that Christ has shed his precious blood on Calvary's cross, and therefore we can refer to him as a savior, but also as our redeemer. And we can say with Philip Bliss, I will sing of my redeemer and his wondrous love to me on the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. You know that the eternal Son of God, He was the eternal and infinite and only begotten Son of God, the brightness of His Father's glory. Thomas Boston says this, Yet He must descend from the throne of His majesty, divest Himself of His robes of insupportable light, take upon Him the form of a servant, become a curse, and bleed to death for sin. Did you did ever sin appear so hateful to God as here? Why should we fear the Lord? Because clearly displayed in the cross of Calvary is God's hatred of sin. Have we heard about that in calls for revival? Do we hear about that from men and women, boys and girls who profess a newfound faith in Jesus? I've found Jesus. I've heard statements like this over the last two, three weeks. Come and and be filled with the love of Jesus. Come and dive deep into the love of God. What do those things mean? 
What do statements such as that really mean? Let's be ruggedly and rigidly biblical. I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I've been bought back. The price has been paid for my sins. The obligation and the debt I owed to God has been paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's my hope today. You know, your greatest need is not for relief of your anxiety. Your greatest need is not necessarily to be healed of your diseases. Your greatest need and mine is to be healed of the effect of sin. To be healed of the effect of sin and the presence and the impact of sin on ourselves. We are broken. We are hurting. We are corrupted. We are malformed by the effect of sin. But Christ comes and washes us clean. And we are clean indeed if he is our Savior. He goes on to say, Did ever sin appear so hateful to God as here? To demonstrate God's infinite holiness and hatred of sin, he should have the most glorious and most excellent person in heaven and earth to suffer for it. He would have his own son to die on a disgraceful cross and be exposed to the terrible flames of divine wrath rather than sin should live and his holiness remain forever disparaged by the violations of his law. This God did in his beautiful son, our beautiful Savior. The fourth reason why we should conduct ourselves with fear in this world, and we're getting to the end, is because he was known, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world for, for your sake. And this is what it says in verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What did Peter say in verse 2 of chapter 1? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. He has in view writing to people who have been foreknown by God and rightly understood that word is foreloved to be loved by God before the foundation of the world. And so here in verse 20, he makes that connection. and He says, Jesus was foreknown and foreloved before the foundation of the world. In other words, before you ever existed, before mankind was ever made, before the earth sprang into being, before anything ever was, before space was created, before nothing was created, before anything was created, God loved you. God determined to save you. God determined to save and love all those elect aliens scattered throughout the world and throughout the course of human history. And he determined that he would save you. And so what he's saying in verse 20, God did not create the world and then provide a a recourse for this mess that man created. God did not say, what do I do now? And hand-wringing and after a season of worry and anxiety, Jesus stepped up and said, I'll do it. It's not that at all. Before anything was created or made, God, for the sake of his own glory, and in order to glorify the Son, said, I'm going to create a people that will fall in and of themselves on their own, by virtue of their own decisions, even setting them up in the freedom of their will in the garden, they're in need of a Redeemer and a Savior. I will provide that Redeemer in the eternal Son. God appointed him before all eternity to be our Redeemer. And Peter says that he was appointed for this for our sake. Should that not lead us to a holy, reverent dread, fear, and awe of our God? To say, before I ever existed, God knew of my need of him. Before I was, before this world in which I live was ever even created, God determined that I would come into being and he would save me according to his grace so that I can glorify his son and conduct myself in this life with a godly fear. 
John Calvin says, For herein shines forth more fully the unspeakable goodness of God, that he anticipated our disease by the remedy of his grace and provided a restoration to life before the first man had even fallen into death. Lastly, we should conduct ourselves with fear because our God, our, our faith and hope are in him. Without Christ, we never could call God our Father, and fear would be of a different kind, that of dread of impending judgment. Through Christ, we can call God our Father. The basis of our faith is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. But in Hebrews, it says, By him we have confident access. And that hope is the anchor of our soul. We enter virtually into the sanctuary of God through Jesus Christ. So what can we say in light of this text this morning, in light of these verses that encourage us us to conduct ourselves in fear before God? For all of the reasons listed already, In the earlier sections of chapter 1, we were told that that in him, though now we see him not yet believing, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of our faith, even the salvation of souls. And now we are told down from the, the depths of joy unspeakable and already glorified into the past year, into the words in verse 17, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. These are not incompatible things. The inexpressible joy of knowing Jesus Christ, even though we have never seen him face to face, but knowing him by faith is truly the experience of the believer. But also a dreadful awe and a reverence of the God who sees every single thing about us, before whom we are laid completely bare. And we as his children desire to please our God and Father. Should we not conduct ourselves in a way where we are always and continually sifting through the course of our lives, the thoughts and patterns of our mind, the priorities in our living, the use of our time, the stewardship of the moments that are given to us? Conduct yourselves with fear. The truth is that God is fair. He is is impartial. His justice is fair. Everyone in the last day will get exactly what they have earned. That's the argument of Romans chapter 2 and 3 and James chapter 2. God isn't swayed by worldly definitions or the the incipient encroaching worldly culture. He's not swayed by excuses. He will not show favoritism to you. He cannot be bribed. He will not show any partiality. Does he not weigh the heart? Proverbs chapter 24 verse 22 say, does, he, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Should we not make certain day by day that we bear fruit in keeping with repentance? If there is truly a revival in Asbury, Kentucky, this is how you will know that it's true and real. In the months And the years that follow are the people that were involved and truly and genuinely saved through genuine faith. Are they walking in holiness? Are they conducting themselves in fear before their father? If it's a if it's a fake thing, if it's if it's if it's merely a a representation in a type or or copy, but an inauthentic one, if it's counterfeit. We'll hear nothing about true holiness, a revival of true religion of the soul, obedience, sanctification, truly changed lives. I've heard about change from the student body that has been participating in and leading the revival there. They've actually said that they are have been protected by the 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 leaders of the of the government of the university from uh, from conversion therapy. And what they mean by that is that there are many of them who have lived a life of sin 
and sexual infidelity. And they're protected from the staff and and uh, the people who are running the university from any kind of outside influence or church or individual or preacher or the word of God itself that says, come and be saved. Come and forsake your sins and turn to the living God. You will know a counterfeit revival by whether or not it affirms the word of God in truth. And whether or not holiness, holiness, the secret sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in the life of men and women, boys and girls, truly, truly redeemed, are changed, are God-glorifying, are conducting themselves in fear before the Lord God. God is not guilty of any bad jurisprudence, no bad legislation, no bad laws, no bad jurors, no bad judges. In the end, there's only one judge, and he is impartial, and he is a judge and jury. He is the lawmaker. He is holy and righteous and fair, and he is coming, Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Indeed, he will. And so what must we as believers do? If you own him who is his father, if you address his father, the one who impartially judges, according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Why? Because he is impartial. Because you have not been redeemed with worthless things because you have been redeemed with the blood of the lamb because God's mercy is eternal before the foundation of the world Christ came and Christ purposed to come may God be pleased and may God make us more and more day by day after his own image and enable us to conduct ourselves with fear as we live in this earth in preparation for the next world where our citizenship remains. Let's pray.